Lord, we lift up this time to you. We pray that your spirit would move, that you would enlighten the eyes of our understanding, that you would speak to us um, individually, uh, God, and uh, just uh, what your message is uh, for us as we uh, discuss continue to discuss some things that are going to happen in the end, Lord, but you speak so much about it, and I know that there are reasons for it. So help us to understand what those reasons are, what you want us to learn. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, uh, so we're continuing our study through Matthew. Um, we took a two-week break, and I did a two, uh, two teachings on the Levitical Feast. If you weren't here the last two weeks, feel free to grab the CDs if you want to listen to those messages. Uh, it's just really cool, like God's overarching plan for the world and how the feasts uh, represent the Lord's first and second coming and how he fulfilled the spring feast in his first coming and how he will uh, fulfill the fall feast in his second coming. And just because we've been speaking of the end times, because Jesus in Matthew chapters 24 and 25 has been speaking speaking of the end times, uh, and just looking at everything that's going on in the world, I uh, believe that it was uh, wise for us to kind of dive in a little bit deeper to understand uh, some of these upcoming events so that we are ready, so that we are on guard, so that we aren't uh, caught on our heels, if you will, because that's really the Lord's heart uh, behind speaking of the end times, that we would be watchful, that we would be ready. And he says that uh, several different times. He wants the church to be ready for his return. And he wants those that maybe aren't a part of the church uh, to become a part of the church so that they can be ready for his return. Now, specifically in this text, Matthew chapters 25 verses 31 to 46, we're going to be discussing a specific event that's going to take place in the future. This event is typically referred to as the separation of the sheep and the goats, okay? Uh, now, the title of this teaching is simply Sheep and Goats, uh, but... As we'll see, this is a, an event that the Lord is referring to, but this isn't just um, about it being an event. He's separating two types of people, those that are his, his sheep, and those that aren't his, which are the goats. So though this is representing a specific time period, two specific people groups, uh, really after the tribulation, which we'll get into in a moment, it still is applicable for us today. We can all ask the question, am I a sheep or am I a goat? And we'll understand what that means as we dive into the text. I hope there are no goats. If there are goats, become sheep, okay? Uh, you will see why as we unpack the text. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, it says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. He's referring to His second coming. And He says, when the Son of Man comes in His glory. It's not a matter of if the Son of Man is going to come in His glory. It's a matter of when. Now, we don't know exactly when that's going to happen. As we've been discussing the last several weeks, He says no one knows the day, no one knows the hour, but He he gives us enough hints in Scripture so that we're able to discern the signs of the times. So that we'll recognize, hey, there's a good chance that he'll come back around this time period. Now let me preface this by saying the apostles thought that Jesus was going to come back during their lives. Uh, during the time period that they lived. Um, now obviously he didn't, uh, but the reason they believed that is because of how Jesus communicated when he spoke about the end times. That was the Lord's heart. He wanted each and every generation that followed him to be ready for his second coming. That we would always think that he's coming back in our lifetime. So that's a good thing for us to believe because that's what Jesus wants us to believe. Therefore, be watchful and ready. So it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. Jesus, what he's doing in communicating these titles, the Son of Man, he's going to come with all his holy angels. He's going to sit on the throne of his glory. 
basically what he's doing through this verse is making claims to his identity. Okay, Uh, and this is point number one. His identity affects our identity. His identity affects our identity. Now, before I get into our identity, uh, let's talk about the Lord's identity and what he's revealing here in this text. First off, he refers to himself as the son of man, the son of man. Well, he refers to himself as the son of man more often than any other title, more often than the son of God, more often than the Messiah, more often than the savior, more often the teacher or rabbi, whatever title Jesus has. And he has many. He refers to himself as the son of man more than any other title. Now, what does this mean? The son of man? Well, any person, male or female, is technically a son or daughter of man. But Jesus isn't just any other son of man. He was born from a virgin. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And when he's saying son of man, he's talking about a specific son of man that's referred to throughout the Old Testament. Ezekiel often references the son of man. Daniel often references the son of man. But if you look at Daniel chapter 7, what Jesus is claiming when he says, I'm the son of man, is he's the fulfillment of this scripture. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, it says, I was walking in the night visions, and behold, one like the son of man coming with the clouds of heaven came to the ancient of days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is what Jesus is referencing when he refers to himself as the Son of Man. And there's other areas of the Old Testament that talk about uh, the Son of Man as well. But this is the primary one that he's discussing. And anyone that's listening carefully to Jesus when he refers to himself as the Son of Man is going to realize that he's not just saying that he's the Son of of a man. That's not what he's claiming here. He's claiming to be this specific son of man. This was a very exalted figure. This was a reference to the Messiah. And in fact, Jesus later on, just before his death, during his trial, he clears up this title even further. If you look at uh, Mark chapter 14, Mark chapter 14, verse 61 Jesus brought before the Sanhedrin, he's being tried. And it says, but he kept silent and answered nothing against the high. Uh, Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus, what he does here in answering this question is he uses three references from the Old Testament to solidify his identity, to say, this is who I am. First, he says, I am. Where is that from? Exodus chapter three, when God, Yahweh, revealed himself to Moses and he says, I am who I am. Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. Then he says, look, I am and you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power. This was another reference to deity. It's from Psalm 110, those first couple of verses. It says, the Lord said to my Lord, literally, it says, Yahweh said to Adonai, or in other words, God said to God, okay, Jesus is making the claim to be that person. Yahweh said to Adonai, God said to God. You will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven, coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, that's back to Daniel chapter seven, which we already mentioned. Jesus is claiming not just to be the Messiah. He's claiming to be God. Now, look at how the high priest responds in Mark chapter uh, six, 14, 
Mark chapter 14, I should have kept my place. Mark chapter 14, verse 63, it says, Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Hear what happens? The high priest said he's committed blasphemy. How is he committed blasphemy? Because what he said there in that uh, sentence was that he was God. Jesus wasn't killed for starting a revolution or because he threatened the authority of the religious leaders. Jesus was killed for blasphemy because he claimed to be God. That's why the high priest tears his clothes and says, what further uh, arguments do we need? He said that he was God. He must be killed. Jesus... Back in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, by claiming to be the son of man, he's claiming to be fully God and fully man. He's using the Old Testament reference to the son of man to help the disciples see who he actually is, what his identity actually is. And not only does he say that he's the son of man, he also says when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him. The holy angels are going to come with him. Why? Because he has authority over the angels. If you look at Matthew chapter 26, verse 53, Jesus says, Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my father and he will provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? Jesus has all authority. He he has even authority over the angels. In fact, he created the angels. In Hebrews... Chapter 1, in Hebrews chapter 1, the author of Hebrews, from chapter 1 verse 4 to 14, is arguing the case using the Old Testament to solidify that Jesus is greater than the angels. And he says in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 4, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's obtained a more excellent name than they. It says there that the angels worship Jesus. They worship him. Why? Because he's their creator. Jesus is not Michael the archangel. He is not as some claim to be. He's not Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel was a created being. Jesus is not a created being. There's many references that support this. But if you look at Jude... If you look at Jude verse 9, here's one. Jude verse 9, it says this. Yet Michael, the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring uh, against him a reviling accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. Okay, so Michael the archangel and the devil were fighting over the body of Moses and Michael the archangel had to say, the Lord rebuke you. He had to use the Lord's name to rebuke Satan. Jesus doesn't have to use the Lord's name when he rebukes Satan. When he casts out demons, he just says, I rebuke you. Why? Because he carries the Lord's name. He doesn't have to use the Lord's name because he is the Lord. He's been given a name that's above every name. And that's what Philippians chapter 2 tells us exactly. That's what the author of Hebrews was trying to get across to us. But let's look at Philippians chapter 2. Verse 9, it says, Therefore God also has exalted him, speaking of Jesus, and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. He bears the name that's greater than any other name. He is the Creator. He created the angels. He has authority over the angels. This is revealing his identity. He's making claims to authority. He's saying, I am God. I have authority over the angels. That's why they're going to come with me. And lastly, in Matthew chapter 25, that last part of verse 31, he says, then he will sit on the throne of of his glory. This is another claim to deity. Jesus is claiming to be the Lord of glory. He is the Lord of glory. He will sit on the throne of his glory. 
He has all authority. Yes, he's fully man, but he's also fully God. He has all authority. He's our friend. He's our savior. And he's our king. But for us to understand our own identity, we first have to understand his identity. And Jesus forces us to ask ourselves a question, not just once, but on a regular basis. And this question is posed in Matthew chapter 16. We taught on it a while back, but in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus speaking to the disciples, first he says in verse 13, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? Who are people telling you that I, the son of man, am? And he gives the answer right there in the text. I am. He's telling them that he's God. But then look what happens. In verse 15, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Who do you say that I am? Who do we say Jesus Christ is? Again, this isn't just a one-time thing where we understand who the Lord is. This is something that we have to ask ourselves on a regular basis. What is the Lord's identity? Who is He truly? Why? Because certain times when certain circumstances or situations or hardships or trials come up in our life, we begin to question the Lord's identity. How is God all loving if He's letting me go through heartbreak? How is He all powerful and He desires that none should perish yet my family member perished my friend perished and things can happen in this world specifically as it pertains to suffering and we can begin to question the lord's identity that's why it's important for us to on a regular basis ask the question that jesus forces us to ask ourselves who do you say that i am who do we say that the lord is because for us to understand who we are we first have to understand who he is we'll only discover who we are when we would discover who he is and once again this isn't a one-time thing this is a regular thing in fact in colossians chapter 3 in colossians chapter 3 paul says this in colossians chapter 3 verse 3 He says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life, yeah, your purpose in this life, your meaning for life, your individual calling in this life is hidden in Christ. God's not hiding it in Christ so that we don't find it. He's hiding it in Christ so that we will find it. But in order to find it, we have to seek him out. As you seek out who he is, you will discover who you are. That's why it's so important for us to understand the Lord's identity. If we're confused about the identity of Christ, we're absolutely going to be confused with our own identity. As we discover the identity of Christ then we're able to discover our own identity. Our life is hidden in Christ. As we discover who he is, we will discover who we are. In Matthew chapter 25, verse 32, it says, All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. This is referring to his second coming. He's going to gather all the nations. The nations, he's referring to the Gentiles. Throughout scripture, you often see a God or a prophet or whoever the writer is referring to the nations. They're referring to the Gentile nations. So the Lord, at the end, he's going to gather all the nations. All the nations that survived the tribulation. Back to Philippians chapter 2. Um, I'll read it for you if you don't get there in time. Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, it says again, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, everywhere, on earth, under the earth, in heaven, in hell, you name it, at one point, they are going to recognize that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone on the face of the earth, past, present, future, will recognize the deity of Jesus Christ. But for some, it's going to be too late. 
for some. They will have already faced condemnation. They will have already faced damnation. Why? Because we only get a chance, an opportunity to recognize the Lord's Lordship here on earth. And when we recognize the Lord's Lordship here on earth, then we can be saved. But if we die before we recognize His Lordship, we have no opportunity for salvation. We must recognize His Lordship today if we want to spend eternity with Him tomorrow. So many people put this off and say, yeah, I don't know about this. I'm not going to really look into this. I'm sure it's true and Jesus Christ might be Lord, but I want to be Lord over my own life. When people make that decision today, they're risking being handed over to that decision for eternity. And Jesus is going to get into that as He discusses the goats later on. But first he says, back in verse 32, he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. Uh, sheep and goats, if a shepherd had both sheep and goats, often during the day, uh, he would bring them to the same pastures, the same waters, he would guide them, he would lead them, uh, the whole deal. But at the end of the day, when nighttime came, he would often separate the sheep and the goats. One of the primary reasons for this was because the sheep, they had wool, and because they had wool, they were able to keep themselves warm at the cool of night. The goats, however, they didn't have that thick wool. So they would come together. They would gather together to get heat from each other. Okay, so they would separate the sheep and goats primarily for this purpose. So what Jesus is doing here is he's giving the disciples a cultural illustration to communicate to them about a future event, specifically a future judgment that's going to take place. Now, there are several judgments throughout the scripture. But when you study these judgments and you look at the big picture, one thing is for certain that each and every one of us will face some form of judgment. And that's point number two. We'll all face a form of judgment. We'll all face a form of judgment. Now, not all the judgments are bad, and we'll get into that when we talk about uh, the judgment for the church. When you look at this judgment specifically, it appears to be the judgment that's going to happen directly after the battle of Armageddon and the beginning of the millennial reign. Um, if you guys remember, uh, specifically the Levitical feast, even uh our former studies in Matthew 24 and 25, we talked a lot about this, so I won't get into it in too much detail. But if you look at Revelation chapter 20, in Revelation chapter 20, this is after the battle of Armageddon that happened in Revelation chapter 19. This is during the Lord's millennial reign. Satan is bound for a thousand years. And it says in verse 4, And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God who had not worshipped the beast for his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. There's going to be a judgment that takes place right in the beginning of the millennial reign. And it says there's going to be people that are judging the nations with the Lord. Who are those people? Well, the Bible says that the church is going to judge the world. The church is even going to judge the angels. The church during the millennial reign are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ. Okay, so we're going to see at the end of the tribulation, there are those that accepted Christ referred to as tribulation saints, and there's going to be those that didn't accept Christ and took the mark of the beast. That's what we see here in chapter four. This judgment of the sheep and the goats is likely that the separation of the tribulation saints be referred to as the sheep and those that didn't accept the Lord being referred to as the goats. Some suggest that this is the final judgment. I don't believe so. The final judgment is referred to also in Revelation chapter 20, but it's at the end of the millennial reign. Look, in Revelation chapter 20, 11, 
It says, then I saw a great white throne. This is after the millennial reign, if you want to read that later. And him who sat on it from those who face from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which was the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone one not found in the uh, found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire this is the final judgment the great white throne judgment there's going to be a judgment uh, right at the beginning of the millennial reign the great white throne judgment will happen after the uh, millennial reign why will there need to be another judgment well there's going to be sons of and daughters of tribulation saints and their kids 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 we're going to see there's going to be people that rebel against the lord as we discussed last week so there will be a final judgment for these people now there are several differences between the separation of the sheep and goats that judgment and the great white throne judgment one is the timeline uh, jesus is referring to his second coming we know at his second coming he establishes his millennial reign that's the context of matthew chapter 25 there are also different people groups. He's referring to the nations when he is going to separate the sheep and the goats. This group here are the people uh, that rebel against the Lord after uh, the millennial reign is over or during while the millennial reign is happening. And there are other several differences when you look at the context of Matthew chapter 25 and the great white throne judgment. Regardless of which judgment this is, we don't really have to worry about it. Those who are his, the church doesn't have to worry about these judgments. These aren't judgments that we're going to face, but we all will, even believers will face a form of judgment. And it's communicated in 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This is the specific judgment that the church will face. It's referred to as the Bema seat judgment. That's B-E-M-A. And the Bema seat, where that comes from, is traditionally... Uh, in ancient, the ancient Olympics, the judge for the Olympic event would sit on something called a bema seat. And let's pretend they're watching the 100 meter dash or something. They would sit there at the end of the line, uh, the bema seat, they would sit on top of it, and basically they would judge who's first, who's second, who's third. The bema seat judgment is not a judgment of condemnation. It's a judgment of evaluation. It's a reward system. Okay, so the bema seat judgment that the church will face, we're not being punished for our sins. We've been covered by the blood of the lamb. The Lord forgives us of all our sins, forgives us of all unrighteousness. This is a rewards based judgment. It's this. So God had grace on each and every one of those who, is, who have accepted him. But what do we do with the grace? See, the Bible tells us in Titus uh, 2, 11 to 14, that grace is supposed to teach us to be zealous for good works. Grace is supposed to teach us to be zealous about the things of God. We don't work for our salvation. We work from our salvation. Because God has been so good to me, that should produce in me a desire to live for Him. To be zealous for good works. And this is really... What the Bema seat judgment, the judgment of the church is all about. If you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 12, 
It says, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work by what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is buried... He will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. Again, speaking of this reward system that's going to happen at the Bema Seat Judgment, we'll be rewarded based on our works. Everyone that's saved gets salvation. But, based on what we do with the grace that God's bestowed on us, will determine the rewards we get in heaven. Now, these rewards are often communicated in the form of crowns. We see several crowns, five specifically uh, in Scripture, along the lines of this reward-based system uh, in heaven. And I'll mention them to you if you want to write the references down. In 2 Timothy 4.8, in 2 Timothy 4.8, we see the crown of righteousness. The crown of righteousness, it's given to those who love and eagerly wait for the Lord's second coming. Literally, we get a crown for getting excited about Jesus coming back. Like just the excitement alone and loving that the Lord's coming back and looking forward to it, there's a crown for that. Okay, there's also a crown of life. Mentioned in James chapter 1 verse 12. James chapter 1 verse 12. And this crown of life is given uh, for those who endure temptation and have a deep affection for Christ. Literally, it's like a crown of repentance. If we endure, if we flee, if we walk away from temptation, if we purpose to live in purity because of our affection for Jesus Christ, there's a crown for that. There's also... The crown of glory mentioned in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 9. 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 9. And the crown of glory is given for acts of service. If you're plugged in, if you're involved in the church, if you're serving in different capacities in the church, and not just in the church, outside the church as well, if you're serving the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind of mind and strength, you get the crown of glory. There's also something referred to as the soul winner's crown. The soul winner's crown in 1 Thessalonians 2.9. This is a crown given for evangelism, specifically leading people to Christ. Now, if you share the gospel with someone and they don't come to Christ, does that mean you won't get the crown? I'm not sure, uh, but the point is, <laughs> for for the effort of sharing our faith and people coming to faith, there's a crown for that. There's literally a crown for sharing the gospel. Uh, hopefully, when you share the gospel, people come to the Lord. Sometimes it's hit or miss. Uh, there's another crown that I hope I do not get, uh, and it's the martyr's crown, okay? That's Revelation chapter 2.10. Uh, you get a crown for being martyred for your faith, okay? Okay. Um, so these are the, the crowns that are mentioned in the Bible. And again, this is this uh, reward system based on our works. We don't work for salvation. We work from salvation and we can uh, gain these rewards. Now, what does this look like in heaven? I think it's going to be really hard for us with finite minds to wrap our minds around this concept. Uh, but based on studies, uh, what I believe is this. Every single person that goes to heaven is going to experience paradise. They're going to experience perfection, right? We're not going to be jealous of people's crowns and their rewards and things like that. But I do believe because the Lord often talks about this reward system that Based on what we do with the grace God's given us, based on the, the works that we walk in here on earth, we'll have a greater capacity to experience perfection. Okay? Everything's gonna be perfect for everyone, but because there are these rewards, it would make sense that somehow, some way, there's a greater capacity to experience perfection. Now we also see in Revelation 4, uh, 9 to 10, uh, what we do with these crowns. We're going to cast these crowns at the feet of Jesus. Does that mean we no longer get the rewards from what we did on earth? I wouldn't necessarily say that. It's more uh, about the message behind casting the crowns at the feet of Jesus. 24 elders on 24 thrones representing the church or uh, the saints across history. 
Uh, but basically why they're casting their crowns at the Lord's feet is because they recognize they wouldn't have earned those crowns if it wasn't for the Lord. The only reason they have those rewards is because of Jesus Christ. It's to teach us something. We're not compelled by rewards. We're compelled by the love of Christ. We don't do things. We don't live a certain lifestyle with expectations of what Christ is going to do for us in the future. We live a certain lifestyle because of what Christ has already done for us in the past. And that's really the message behind casting the crowns at uh, at the Lord's feet. He goes on in Matthew chapter 25, verse 33. Matthew 25 verse 33, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Okay. The right hand was the uh, side of prominence. Okay. You want to be on the right hand. You don't want to be on the left hand. Again, this would be the separation of the tribulation saints. Those got saved during the tribulation. When the Lord comes back, uh, would be the sheep. The goats would be those that took the mark of the beast that didn't get saved. Now it says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 34, Then the king will say to those on his right hand, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So now in this section specifically, he's referring to the sheep. And why the sheep are going to enter into his kingdom is because of what they did. They heard the good shepherd's voice and they followed him. They lived the life or at least purpose to live the life that he did. And this is what sheep do. Point number three, his sheep hear his voice and follow him. His sheep hear his voice and follow him. Exactly what Jesus says in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10 verse 4, Jesus speaks about how he's the good shepherd. In verse 4, he says, and when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. The sheep know his voice. They hear his voice and they follow his voice. Are you a sheep? Are you one of his? Are you hearing his voice? When you hear his voice, are you following his voice? This is what sheep do. They hear the voice of the good shepherd and they follow him. They do what he asks them to do. He goes the way, they go the way that he calls them to go. And that's essentially what we see here in this text. Jesus, he's speaking of people who are in need. Jesus came to help people in need. If Jesus is the way, he shows us the way to live. We don't just follow his voice, but we follow his way. His way was to help the needy. Now, when you look at these people, the hungry, thirsty, naked, in prison, All these different criteria of people is really summed up, as I mentioned, they're people in need. They're people that are suffering on some level. And if you look at Luke chapter 4, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus, right when he started his earthly ministry, he read his mission statement in the synagogue, quoting Isaiah chapter 61, And it says this in Luke chapter 4 verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Listen to the people that the Lord was called to minister to. The poor, the brokenhearted, the captives, meaning anyone that's bound to anything, the blind, the oppressed. Jesus 
was sent to help suffering people. Why? Because suffering people recognize their need for Jesus. But because Jesus ministered to suffering people, he calls us to do the same. That's the distinction between the sheep and the goats. The sheep did what Jesus did. They followed his voice. They followed his way. They helped those who were in need. And look what he says in Matthew chapter 25. The end of verse 40, I say to you, and as much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. They were approved based on their works. Why? Because faith without works is dead. James clarifies this in James chapter 2. I wonder if James was thinking back to this, uh, this, this, Teaching that Jesus had here, because it's very similar, in James chapter 2, verse 14, he says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, James isn't saying that works saves us. He's not saying that you earn your salvation. What he's attempting to do is define what biblical faith is. Biblical faith looks like something. It's not just an intellectual thing. It's not just an emotional thing. It's an action thing. You've heard me communicate this before, but the word faith in the Greek is literally trust, to put our trust in Jesus. It's not just a spiritual thing. It's a practical thing. In context of Matthew chapter 25, it looks like helping those who are in need. It looks like helping suffering people. Now, yes, as a church, as individual believers, we're called to help needy people, whether they're hungry or thirsty or lacking clothes or lacking whatever. But there's a balance here. Just because we're called to help the needy doesn't mean that we're called to help everyone in need. Now, let me explain. Jesus He didn't heal everyone. Perfect example. In John chapter 5, we see him come to this pool and there's a multitude of people that are sick. All different kinds of sicknesses. And Jesus heals one man. A man that had been, had an infirmity for 38 years. There's multitudes of people. Jesus heals one. Why? He only healed the people who his father told him to heal. Now we see other scenarios in scripture where Jesus heals the whole multitude. Why? Because God told him, God the father told him to heal the whole multitude. The point is we need spiritual discernment when we're helping people in need. Because sometimes we think we're helping people, but we're actually hurting them. There's a big difference between helping and enabling Just because someone asks for something doesn't mean you're obligated to give it to them as a Christian. Sometimes people ask for things that aren't good for them. This is where the spirit comes into play. People come to the church all the time and they ask for money. And there's certain times where I'm able to do it because where we're at uh, as a church and I'm able to help them out. And, uh, you know, we're not a big church. We're not like flowing with <laughs> with finances as some other big churches are. Sometimes we're in a position to do it. Sometimes we're not in a position to do it. In certain circumstances, the Lord will give me discernment and say, hey, I put them in this situation. I'm challenging them so that they lean on me. Don't, don't take my place here. Don't take my place. I'm trying to get them to lean on me. And then there's other circumstances where I've had the Lord knock on my heart and say, you need to help that person. You need to help them financially. The point is, helping isn't always helping. Sometimes helping is hurting. And when we enable, we're not helping. I used to get my parents when I was uh, an addict. I used to get my parents to help me all the time, but they weren't helping me. They were killing me. They were enabling me by letting me live at their house, uh, 
uh, take advantage of the situation, uh, whatever the case may be, and they're enabling, you've heard me talk about it before, literally almost cost me my life. Now, that's not on them, that's on me and the decisions that I made, but the point is that sometimes when we think we're helping people, we're not always helping people. Also, in context to this passage, Jesus is referring to his brethren. His brethren? Well, that could be one or two or both things. Uh, the tribulation saints... Uh, and or um, the Jews that get saved also during the tribulation. But he's talking about people that are in relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, that does not mean that we're not supposed to help people that aren't part of the church. That's not what it means. It's just the context of this passage. He's talking to people that are in relationship with him. Okay, the point is, yes, we're called to help people. We're called to help needy people. We're called to help suffering people. But sometimes we assume that we're helping people when we're actually hurting them. And it's important to even pray about these things. I'm not saying don't give the guy in the corner uh, change or don't help uh, someone that's really struggling. All I'm saying is pray about some of this stuff. Sometimes we jump the gun and we think we're going to help someone and we're actually uh, putting them in a worse situation. We're preventing them from leaning on the Lord to help them. There's a balance. That's the point. Matthew chapter 25, verse 41 then he will also say to those on the left hand depart from me you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels for i was hungry and you gave me no food i was thirsty and you gave me no drink i was a stranger and you did not take me in and naked and you did not clothe me sick in prison and you did not visit me then they also will answer him saying lord when do you when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Look back at verse forty one. We'll break this down a little bit. It says then he will also say to those on the left hand, speaking of the goats, depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. He refers to the devil and his angels. The devil has angels. Why? Because a third of the angels chose to rebel against God following Satan. And basically that made those angels under the authority of Satan. He talks about his angels. Though God created them, they're no longer gods. Why? Because they're following Satan. Not all God's creation are his in this sense, in the spiritual sense, which we'll understand in a moment. In other words, those who follow Satan are his and those who follow God's are his. John talks about this, but before we get into it a little more detailed, I want to make the point, point number four, who we follow is our father. Who we follow is our father. Now, these angels followed Satan. Satan was their spiritual father. The people that followed in the lifestyle of Satan were making Satan their father. Jesus talks about this. But before we get there, I want to look at 1 John chapter 3. John makes this distinction. 1 John chapter 3 verse 8. He says, he who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. And this the children of God and the children of devil are of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. John is making this distinction between sons of the devil and sons of God. And when he says, uh, if you sin, you're of the devil, he's not necessarily speaking of condemnation. He's talking about uh, continuing to practice sin and not repenting, neglecting repentance. He's saying you're of your father, the devil. But John isn't just using his words, his thoughts. Obviously, he's inspired by the spirit, but he's pulling this from things that Jesus said. In John chapter eight, if you want to look there real quick so we can get some clarity. John chapter eight. Verse 41, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and he says, you do the deeds, John eight forty one. you do the deeds of your father, 
Then they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. They're claiming that God's their father. They think God's their father. Look what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Because there is no truth in him, which when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. Basically, what Jesus is getting at is that what you do determines who your father is. We don't get to choose our earthly fathers. None of us get to choose our earthly fathers, but we do get to choose our heavenly fathers. And how we choose our heavenly fathers is really displayed by how we live our lives here on this earth. We either, like the Pharisees, Pharisees imitate Satan, they had hateful hearts, um, they were critical, they were judgmental, they were uh, hypocritical. Uh, we see all the flaws in the Pharisees, and Jesus says, based on the way you live, your father is the devil. Okay. <clears throat> we have a choice to imitate the devil or to imitate God. God tells us through Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. In Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 it says, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children and walk in love. Walking in love really sums up what it means to be a child of God. But we can walk in love and not be a child of God. What do I mean? Every human being is God's creation, but not every human being is God's child. See, when you look back, way back at Genesis, uh, we had Adam, right? The first man. Then you had Eve, the first woman. And what happened? They sinned. They sinned by disobeying God's word and following Satan's word. When they made that decision, essentially, they were making Satan their spiritual father. They were following in the footsteps of Satan. Sin came into the world, and now... Each and every person born, obviously all of us from the lineage of Adam, carries on that sin. We're all born as sons of the devil. We're all born as sons of the devil. That's why Jesus tells us in John chapter 3, you must be born again. You need to be born again. You're born into sin. You're born as a son of Satan because the inherited sin. But you must be born again. We must be born again and then we must imitate our heavenly father. Who we follow is our father. What we do determines who our father is. Look what he says in Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. <clears throat> verse 41. He says, Then he will also say to those on the left hand, Depart from me, you cursed, into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Angels, hell was not prepared for man, it was prepared for the devil and his angels. It's really the absence of God, the absence of relationship with God. That's what the devil chose, that's what the third of the angels chose. Ultimately, when we make decisions based uh, uh, make decisions here on earth based on who our spiritual father is, whether we choose to follow our heavenly father or choose to follow the God of this world, the devil, who we choose as our spiritual father determines our eternal destination. Basically, so many people think God's so cool for sending people to hell. He's just giving you the father that you wanted. <laughs> He's giving you the father that you wanted. You said, hey, I want to be rebellious. I don't want to listen to God. I want to do my own thing. So God says, here, go for it. This is where that leads you. It's absence from me. You didn't want relationship with me. So you get relationship with him. The decisions we make in this world determine our eternal destination. will be with one father or the other. Heavenly father or Satan. This is what he's getting at here. He continues on in Matthew chapter 24, verse 25, 45, sorry. Matthew 25, verse 45. Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. A faith that doesn't work is a faith that doesn't save. That's what he's getting at here. Um, if, if our faith looks like 
nothing, if it has no substance, if there's no evidence of it, then it's not a saving faith. These people did not have a saving faith. They recognized him as Lord, but everyone at the end is going to recognize Jesus as Lord. Again, it's not enough for us to recognize his lordship at the end of time. We must recognize his lordship during this time with the short lives that we have and respond to it in a way that brings him glory by doing the things that he's asking us to do. Matthew chapter 25, verse 46. This is where we'll close. And these, speaking of the goats, will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Fifth point, simple, goats go to hell. It's just the truth. The goats, they go to hell. That's what he's saying. This is on my left hand. They're, they're going to hell. Everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, some will argue, uh, hell can't be eternal. Like a good God couldn't, couldn't punish someone for eternity. Uh, but when you look at the Greek words, both for everlasting and eternal, it's the same words. Some will say, well, uh, uh, those that don't believe in Christ will will perish. They'll just cease to exist. That's not what Jesus teaches. This it would be like this: the likelihood of hell being temporary is uh, just as much as the likelihood as heaven being temporary. Okay, the same words are used. So if hell's temporary, then heaven's temporary. Okay, based on what the word communicates, specifically with using the uh, eternity word and the everlasting word. They're both eternal, eternal paradise, eternal judgment. It's one or the other. Now, why would Jesus be telling his disciples this? Why would he be communicating this to his disciples? Well, for one, he's warning them. He's warning specifically one of them. Why? Because one of these disciples isn't a sheep. One of them's a goat, and we're going to see that next week in Matthew chapter 26. He's given Judas another chance. This is what awaits those that aren't mine, those that don't hear my voice, those that don't follow my voice, those that don't live their lives, lives as if I'm their Lord. This is their eternal destination. He's trying to get the message across to Judas so that he would choose not to be a goat anymore, that he would become a sheep. But also... He's communicating this to the disciples so that they know what the goats are going to face so that they'll warn the goats. In other words, he's warning the sheep to warn the goats. And that's what the Lord is trying to get across to us. This is what's going to happen to those who aren't his. If you're a sheep, tell the goats. Tell them what's going to happen. Do you know any goats? I'm sure everyone in this room knows some goats, knows some people that aren't his, right? The goats are going to hell, but something could change if they hear the word of God. If you as a sheep communicate to them what it means to have a good shepherd, what it means to have a savior that looks after you, that protects you, that has an eternal destination that's, that's good for you. That has a life here on earth that's good for you. Sometimes all, all it takes is for a sheep to speak up and then a, a goat sees the benefits of being a sheep. They choose to be a sheep and come under the good shepherd. So are you a sheep? Are you hearing his voice? Are you following him? Are you serving him? Are you helping people who are in need? Are you sharing the gospel with the goats? Or are you a goat? Or do you not know if you're a goat? Are you not hearing his voice? Are you not following him? Are you not doing the things that he's asking you to do? A lot weighs on these identities, whether we're sheep or we're goats. If you believe that you might be a goat, talk to some of the sheep and, 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 and tr- become, become a sheep. The Lord desires you to become a sheep. Not because he wants to just be the master over you, but because he knows that being the master over you is the greatest possible scenario for you, both in this life and in the future. If you're a sheep that knows a goat, tell a goat the gospel. Share the gospel with them. How much would we have to hate someone to be okay with them spending eternity in hell? Like eternal torture, like worse than anything we could ever imagine on this earth. Jesus speaks more about hell 
than he does about heaven because he wants people to know not just the paradise that awaits the believers, but but the torment, the eternal torment that waits the awaits uh, those who do not know him. And he wants the believer to know about hell, to know about the goats, so that we'll tell the goats so they might accept the good shepherd. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your warnings. God, I just pray, uh, Lord, if if there's anyone here that's um, questioning what side they stand on, whether you're right or you're left, um, I pray that you uh, would just get their attention, Lord, that that they would recognize uh, how good of a shepherd you actually are. Uh, They would choose to to, uh, put you as the authority over over their lives, that they would choose to listen to you and follow you and do what you're asking uh, them to do, God. And, um, and for everyone that, that knows that you're uh, our good shepherd, Lord, I pray um, that you would give us boldness to share the gospel with the goats, um, that we wouldn't let our, our selfishness or insecurities or uh, whatever the case may be, anything to discourage us from, from warning people of the, of the judgment that awaits and God, when we share, it wouldn't just be about uh, a fear thing, something that they don't want to go through, uh, but really the benefits of, of, of being your sheep, of, of having you as the authority of our lives, and, and how good you are to, to those that are yours, how good you are to your children that, that accept you and follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.